Hello, my name is Ashley Balin, and welcome to Baby Puppy, the parenting podcast for anyone raising a human or fur baby. Now, before I start getting angry emails from people in the dog community or parenting community about how different raising a dog is from a child, trust me, I know, I know, I'm not saying they're the same at all. But as a professional dog trainer and behavior consultant and a mother, there are a startling number of similarities. I've applied strategies from my dog training education and experience to parenting with great success and vice versa. From the early days with an infant or puppy, dealing with teething, crate or crib training, socialization and language acquisition, to nutrition, anxiety, coping mechanisms, independence, confidence building and more, it's impossible to deny a crossover. On each episode of this podcast, we'll explore a different topic and speak with a parenting expert to gain insight, strategies, and advice while comparing them to my experience working with dogs. Join me on this journey to raise confident, empathetic, respectful, happy, and healthy dogs and humans. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Reeder. He's a distinguished professor in the departments of pediatrics, physiology, and pharmacology and medicine at Western University, and a scientist at the Robarts Research Institute. Dr. Reeder has published four books, 32 book chapters, and over 280 peer-reviewed manuscripts and trained more than 50 fellows and graduate students. He is the only endowed chair in pediatric clinical pharmacology in Canada and wrote the Canadian Pediatric Society's position statement on cannabis use. We delve deep into the world of cannabis, what it is, how it works, and how we might use it to treat both children and dogs. Enjoy. My name is Michael Reeder, and uh, I'm a faculty member at uh, Western University in London, Ontario. I hold the uh, Canadian Institute of Health Research GSK Chair in Pediatric Clinical Pharmacology. So I'm a pediatric clinical pharmacologist, which means I'm a pediatrician with extra training in clinical pharmacology and pharmacology. Um, and that's my faculty position. I'm also uh, a member of the Canadian Pediatric Society Drug Therapy Committee. And in that context, I'm the author of their statement on medical cannabis in children, the original one in 2016, and the revision coming out in a few months. So you're busy, is what you're saying. Yes, I am. <laughs> and do you have any kids of your own? Oh, yeah, I have four. Four kids, and how old are they? Uh, little guy is 16, and the oldest guy is 36, and there's a couple in between. And do you have any dogs, just because it's pertinent to this podcast? We had a dog. We don't have one right now. We had a, 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 a retriever uh, lab cross named Casey. Beautiful dog. We had her for many years. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away. Uh, okay. We don't have a dog okay. right now. But uh, my family, now my family are very dog rich. Um, not so much my wife's side, but my side of the family had this, I think there's almost more dogs than people. Oh, really? Yeah, they love their dogs. <laughs> I think that's probably true in my family as well. Yes. So I, I always like to start these conversations just being 100% transparent. Like I, I'm not an expert on marijuana or CBD or THC or anything pertaining to any type of medicine for humans or dogs. Right. So I, you know, I have dozens of clients that have been recommended CBD oil and treats for various ailments from their vets or from canine naturopaths. So I've seen the effects personally with the dogs that I work with and I've 
heard hundreds of anecdotes from dog owners, but mm. in no means does that give me the authority to make recommendations on the subject. Right. Uh, however, you are you are an expert. <laughs> you you wrote the Canadian Pediatric Society's position statement, as you mentioned, on cannabis use. So that's why I wanted to chat with you about this. Like, sure. So since Canada legalized cannabis, I've frequently been asked about it in its use with dogs, and many parents in my social circles have started using it themselves recreationally or medically, and some have even had it recommended for their children. Right. And I guess I just wanted to start with the basics. Pretend I'm in pre-K and I've never heard sure. of cannabis before. So sure. well, what yeah. is cannabis? And yeah, to quote, to quote yeah. uh, there's a great line. I don't know if you've ever seen the, remember the movie Philadelphia? Yes, of course. Yeah, but Will Smith plays a, an attorney in that movie. He has a great line in it. He says, he says to his expert, explain to me like I'm four years old how this works. Exactly. So, so I'm going to explain to you like you're four years old how this works. Yes. What is cannabis? What so, is the difference between CBD and THC? Because those sure. are the acronyms we kind of hear a lot. Sure. Well, yeah, there's a lot. And of course, cannabis acronyms get tossed around all the time and people speak of it casually. So let's start with what cannabis is. So cannabis or marijuana are the dried flowers and subtending leaves. So they're plant byproducts of the plant uh, order rosaleus, so the plant order rosaleus, the species is mostly cannabis sativa. So cannabis sativa is a species of plant from which most marijuana is derived. And it's it's a dried product. Now, this the dried um, subtending leaves and stems of the cannabis plant, the fe it's always a female cannabis plant, by the way, that gets harvested, of the female cannabis plant uh, contain a number of compounds. So when they talk about marijuana, this is not like talking about, say, penicillin, which is one thing. Um, it's actually got about 60 different cannabinoids. It's also got things called terpenes and sesquines in it. So it's got a bunch of other compounds in it. It's about, in substantial amount, about 160 different compounds in, depending how you define substantial, in marijuana, some of which have, which, which have a variety of biologic effects, most of which have never been studied. So the two that are most abundant in terms of the plant and also in terms of their uh, neurologic effects are THC and CBD. So let's start with the first one. So THC is an acronym for delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. So delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, or, or THC, is the neuroactive part, uh, the, the euphorian part of marijuana. So that's the part that gives people the desired euphorian effect of marijuana. So if you're going to smoke marijuana and get the high off it, that's what does it. Uh, and it's present in varying amounts. So if you go back to the 70s and early 80s, it was about sort of 6 to 10%, 12% of THC content in uh, marijuana. Now, a lot of recreational marijuana has higher content. And what's happened is, you know, marijuana is a plant. You can breed plants pretty easily. And some people are pretty good at it. So selective breeding has resulted in an increase in THC content, such that the recreational cannabis sold today is on average twice as potent as it was in the 1970s, sometimes higher. That's the recreational part. Is that any, have any therapeutic efficacy? Good question. Nobody knows. Um, there's some suggestion that it might have some beneficial effect in using combination with CBD for some things, but that's, it certainly by itself is not therapeutic. It's euphoria. It's, it's a recreational chemical. Um, we'll go into how it works in a minute. So let's turn to the second part, which is CBD or cannabidiol. So cannabidiol is the other part, psycho or neuroactive component of uh, cannabis. And it's 
present in lower concentrations, it's between six and nine percent, um, and it it does not have any euphoriant effects, so it doesn't make you high. It does have CNS effects. So if you look at uh, people like uh, Charlotte Figgy, who, by the way, very sad, passed away this week. Um, I heard from COVID, I think. Yeah, it's, it's the suspicion, although she tested negative, but they're not sure what, that was a while before she passed. So they're sort of trying to sort that out. She had Dravet syndrome, which is a genetic epilepsy. Um, so her, she achieved uh, very uh, much better control, not complete control, much better control over epilepsy by using a high CBD content developed by the Stanley Brothers in Oregon, or in Colorado, rather. Um, and the uh, and so it has the effects, the, the anesthesia effect, and this has been known for a long time. So if you go back, if you go back and, and look at at a use throughout history, Herodotus, who wrote the history, which is the, the first book in history ever written, uh, written about as I remember, 300 BCE, describes what is probably recreational cannabis use. The textbook of the Yellow Emperor, which is a Chinese traditional medicine book, written about 175 BCE describes what is probably the use of marijuana. And it's been used anecdotally on and off for a long time. The, it's been popularized. There was a guy called O'Shaughnessy, who was a, a, an Irish physician, worked for the British East India Company, was the first one to popularize it in the West, because in the 1850s, he, he was describing use of it in, in India for various things, including migraine and headaches and uh, seizures. And it's been used on and off of that for a while. Interestingly enough, uh, marijuana cigarettes were on the U.S. pharmacopoeia for about... 80 years for the treatment of headache. They were taken off in, in the in the 20s or 30s, um, 1930s. So those are the two major compound major compounds. How do they work? There's a lot of mystique attached to uh, medical marijuana, but in point of fact, they're actually fairly the compounds themselves follow actually fairly traditional pharmacologic principles. So there's a thing called a receptor. So a receptor is Kind of like a key, it's kind of like a lock on a cell. It sits on the surface of the cell. It's a protein sits on the top of your cell, and it's kind of like a lock to a door, and it's just sitting there. And the receptors and and these receptors have ligands or compounds that target them, and the, the ligand or compound that targets is like the key that opens the door. So if we look at this analogy, THC is the ligand for the cannabidiol for the, for the, for the cannabidiol, cannabis receptor, and there are two of them. CB1 and CB2. CB1 are the ones that happen in the brain, and CB2 are everywhere else. So what when you, when you take uh, ingest in marijuana, so when you smoke marijuana, uh, and interestingly enough, for marijuana to be active um, from the plant, it has to be burnt, has, to be, has to, be, to be decarboxylated, so you have to heat it. So that's what smoking does, or, or cooking. So if you heat... Uh, marijuana, so you smoke marijuana, that releases THC, you know, a bunch of compounds, including THC. You smoke it into your lungs, it gets into your bloodstream. It goes into the bloodstream to the brain where it interacts with this thing on the cell surface called a receptor. So the THC is the key that opens the receptor, and the receptor triggers the euphoria effects. And the receptor is a very classic receptor. It's called a G-protein coupled receptor. It's a classic kind of receptor. It's the most common receptor type in the human body, um, and it triggers the euphoria effects. CBD acts on the receptor at a different site than the actual key site. It actually modifies how the receptor works. Uh, but they both act on the, it's believed they act on these receptors. CBD might have other effects. We don't, we don't understand all the way it works. But that's how they work. Interesting enough, by the way, you may wonder what they do in the plant. They appear to have some effects in the plant. So in a plant, 
THC appears to be an anti uh, protecting, protected against insects, and CBD appears to help the plant metabolize things it gets out of the soil. So they have a role in the plant. They don't, the plants don't have these compounds for no reason. We have CBD receptors not because we want to get high from marijuana, but because we make CBD-like compounds in our body that are used for signaling in the nervous system. And what happens is, is that we make them in low concentrations that affect these receptors. And when we take the drugs like THC or CBD, they they, we take them in much higher concentrations, which produce a pharmacologic or drug effect. So that's what they are, those two compounds. So in terms of its medical potential, there's very little work. Very few people think THC has medical potential. I mean, it, a tiny amount might help CBD work, but the main action for medical, uh, medical effects is actually on CBD. So, okay. yeah, I'd like to kind of go a little further down that, that uh, rabbit hole. Um, yep. So, yeah, so you just gave me a whole bunch of information and congratulations. It's probably the most succinct summary of, you know, CBD versus THC that I've heard because I actually have a much further and deeper understanding of it now. So I appreciate that. Thank uh, you. But, but it was a lot of information. So yes. I want well, I just, I just want to kind of break down. So from what I understand about cannabis use with dogs, which I have a little more knowledge about than with children or adults. Right. Uh, you never want to give a dog straight marijuana or anything with THC in it. So if you do choose to use it for whichever, you know, um, medical challenge you might be experiencing, which we'll go further into, but right. you want to stick to just pure CBD oils and products. Is that the same for children? Yes. Okay. It's, so well, it's interesting. It, it depends. Yeah. It if you look at the CBD, so say you, and, and again, prescribing prescribing medical cannabis product in Canada is a bit unusual because you authorize and use. You're not actually prescribing the product. So if you, for instance, prescribe, say if I want to prescribe, returning to my example, amoxicillin, which is a kind of penicillin for a child. And so I want to give them 125 milligrams of amoxicillin three times a day for seven days because they have an ear infection. I read a prescription saying that the pharmacist fills it, no problem. If you authorize cannabis, you're authorizing the use of a certain kind of compound, but the patient has to then go in. You have to fill a form out as, as a prescriber. The patient has to go in and arrange it, and you have to find a, a supply, someone who will supply it. So it's a very, it's a prescribing. I see patients in clinic here who have prescribed cannabidiol oil too for our, our general pediatricians, because here in London, Ontario, there's our neurologists prescribe it, and I prescribe it for general pediatricians because. It requires a lot of work and follow-up, and as a universe, as a salaried university physician, it's easier for me. To much I have the time to do it and the ability to do the follow-ups. So it's a lot more work and a lot more follow-up, um, and you have to find a supplier. And part of the challenge is finding who the right supplier. Now, many of the suppliers, when they sell CBD oil, they'll say it's twenty-five. Say, for instance, twenty-five milligrams of CBD, one milligram of THC. So you're saying, well, why is that? And the answer is, is that the two compounds, if you look at them chemically, are very similar. And because they're plant products and you have to extract them, it's hard to get something that's just one compound. So you're, you're likely to have a little bit of their compound. For some medical indications, like for instance, studies in autism suggest that might be helpful. Um, but when you prescribe it, you're, you're going to get mostly, you're gonna, you can get CBD oil that has mostly CBD, but a lot of them have a tiny amount of THC. So a tiny amount is probably not a bad thing. But you don't want to prescribe therapeutically something that's just THC. Right. So the goal is to have it as pure to 100% CBD as possible. Yes. 
Okay, and you had mentioned uh, like epilepsy or different seizure disorders. I know for dogs, the most common reasons I've seen uh, CBD be recommended are arthritis, seizure disorders, uh, chronic pain management, and even in some cases, cancer. Right. And, and of course, anxiety. So as a behavior consultant, the majority of my clients that have been recommended to take CBD are for anxiety or other extreme fear-based behaviors. So I'm wondering in, in children, what some of the main reasons they might be authorized or prescribed cannabis might be. Sure, certainly. Well, the only, the most recognized and the most condition the most evidence is seizures. So um, children with epilepsy, there's, there's kind of two groups of kids with epilepsy. There are a group of kids with epilepsy who have fairly, what I would call, you know, straightforward epilepsy or, 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 or conventional ep epilepsy. And that is, um, and that, in that case, often the regular anticonvulsant drugs are effective. But there's a subset of kids, and it's not a small subset of kids with epilepsy, who have um, hard-to-treat epilepsy. So, for instance, Charlotte Figge had Dravet syndrome, named after a French neurologist. I think Jean-Pierre Le Dravet. Um, Alf, Alfie Dingy, who is a, her equivalent in the, in the UK, had PHC um, epilepsy with some numbers behind it, which is also a rare syndrome. And those are often very hard to treat. So they don't respond well to... Uh, regular anticonvulsant drugs, and they often give combinations. They still don't respond well. So Charlotte Figge was having 300 seizures a week before she tried CBD oil. Wow. Her neurologist had tried a bunch of combination drugs, which wasn't worth that effective. So people have used CBD, and it's usually in addition to those drugs, not instead of those drugs. And they found that their, her seizures went from 300 a week to 30. So, and there's a couple trials. So, um, so uh, Owen Javinsky did the big New England Journal trial a couple of years ago, a multi-center trial, I think 28 centers in 14 different countries or something like that. It was a big, big trial. Uh, convincingly showed that it was effective. There have been a couple of smaller trials since that have shown it. There's a, a recent meta-analysis or uh, looking at study, analyzing all the studies. We've, there have been about 700 kids in, entered in these trials. And they do show that on average, there's a decrease in, if for kids with severe epilepsy, there's a decrease in seizure frequency between 30 and 50%. On average, that's sometimes that's more dramatic, thing. sometimes less. So that's the most the condition that's used mostly, and the one we have the most evidence for. There's increasing interest in use in autism because autism, a condition which is the autism spectrum disorder, the severe conditions, there's no real pharmacologic treatment that is that effective. So people have tried it. The Israelis, for some reason, are quite interested in it, and there are some short-term trials showing some modest benefits. So people are pursuing it in that area. Those are the two areas which I would say there's the most evidence for. There's some work in spasticity with cerebral palsy, for instance, suggests it might be helpful, and multiple sclerosis as well. Um, the use in, it's, it's effective, marijuana derivatives like nabodiol are effective as anti-emetic anti drugs, so not so drugs to reduce the side effects of chemotherapy. And, but there's, those, those are actual drug drugs. They've been derived actually from, from marijuana and they've actually someone's chemically synthesized the compound. I think I believe Greenleaf is the one that makes it. I'm not quite sure, but but there those those are effective and they're as effective as as our strong anti-emetic drugs. Then we get into some other disorders. So people are using it, for instance, people are talking about use in chronic pain and anxiety. Anxiety use in teenage use is a bit problematic, and that's because there's really conflicting studies on whether it's effective in anxiety or not. Um, and part of the issue with kids is is that um, we know that psychotropic drugs in kids don't have the same response as you in adults. So as an example, the SSRIs, 
the antidepressant drugs, the serotonin selective reuptake inhibitor SSRI drugs for antidepressant for depression, have somewhat different effects in teenagers than in adults. Um, and there was this concern about suicidality. It was a, a big issue about five or six years ago. Um, anxiety in kids is not the same as, as anxiety in adults. And while there are some small trials suggesting that, that CBD may be helpful in anxiety in adults, the, the, the same has not been found in children. And chronic pain, of course, is, a, is an issue that everyone that, that's very controversial because there are some studies in adults showing that they're opiate sparing in chronic pain. There are some studies showing that they're not. Uh, in kids, there's really very little solid work to guide people's do guide people in, in dosing things. Now, let's turn to our canine friends. So what do we know about this being used? I know that CBD has been used in, in dogs for inflammation and pain because there is a suggestion that it's anti-inflammatory. Uh, right. What do we so know about it in humans? What I wanted to talk about is that, you know, in, in my personal experience, I've found especially over the last couple of years that a number of naturopaths and uh, veterinarians have started heavily recommending CBD as a treatment for anxiety in dogs. Right. And, you know, I, I specialize in anxiety, aggression, and various fear-based behaviors. And, you know, based on the limited research I've done, as well as the, you know, firsthand experience I've had, you know, CBD, as you said, like, it's not psychoactive. So the only reason it might help to alleviate anxiety is if the anxiety is somehow connected to physical pain or inflammation, which the CBD might be able to treat. And, you know, although I usually don't recommend pharmaceutical intervention for dogs, uh, you know, behaviorally, unless it is a really extreme situation and training isn't successful. Um, I haven't really seen any benefits of CBD aiding in the elimination of anxiety at all. Um, you know, I've actually seen far more benefits with something like doggy Prozac over, over CBD. So right. I, that's why I was really curious about how CBD was using to, to treat anxiety in, in children. Yeah. Because um, I actually find anxiety in children to be very similar to that as it is in dogs. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I mean, people describe anecdotally how uh, the odd teens will say, well, it helps my anxiety. I'm not, you know, but they're usually, when they talk about that, they're usually talking about using a recreational cannabis, not CBD oil. Right. And the recreational cannabis has THC, so they maybe feel more mellow. Um, they made the euphoria effect. I'm not sure they're less anxious. Well, maybe that's so, something that we should actually riff on a little bit is that there is this like misunderstanding that like the CBD oil or the, you know, medical marijuana that can be prescribed is somehow similar to the pot that we all smoked in high school. Right. So there, what, what is the difference between, you know, the recreational pot that we smoked behind our schools in high school and the CBD oil that is being recommended for all of these different ailments? Well, I mean, the issue with CBD oil is a, is a fairly pure concentration of a drug which has neurological properties. So, that, so it does, we do know it affects the nervous system from the seizure work we've done. But it's not, it's not, but it's not euphorian. You're not going to get right. a euphorian feeling from it. So as opposed to Recreation so where the goal is always to get Sorry? I know, I, I was just saying, so when you when you do when you take just the C B D oil on its own, you're not getting any of the, you know, effects that many people that I know associate with smoking marijuana, like, you know, about giggling or laughing a lot or you know, getting hungry and getting the munchies or like all of those types of things that are associated with recreational right. marijuana 
you wouldn't get by administering CBD oil. No, you wouldn't. Correct. I mean, you might get drowsy because, uh, you know, if you look at the, I mean, if you look at the uh, side effect profile in humans and it is, there's, um, uh, Laura Trick from Colorado has a really good paper on this. Um, there are the, the side effects are totally dose dependent. Um, and there are a number of them. So if you look at, 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 at the kids who use the high end, high end CBD oil for seizures, so 20 milligram per kilogram, which is a whopping dose, about one in six of them over the course of a year stops taking it. And it's, it's mostly because they don't like the side effects because they, they can cause stomach upset, a bit of sedation, certainly uh, can cause dry mouth. Um, there's a, there's transient hypotension or lower lot of breath pressure, drowsiness. Um, so it can cause a number of variety of side effects, uh, which at high doses can lead to people stopping the drug. Those, uh, and again, but none of the high, none of the side effects are related to euphoria because that only have the THC. So the people who smoke marijuana for recreation, those, the people who sell that, breed and sell that stuff, pick it for high THC and they don't do, they, they don't much care about CBD because they don't, probably don't know. So the THC is the driver there because there's a lot more of it than there is of CBD. So you won't expect euphoria. Uh, is it is it a good drug in, do, drug in dogs for pain? I don't know. I mean, the question is, as I mean, I'm, you know, I, as I am no expert on dogs, I'll say that right now. But I think especially a lot, it seems to me that a lot of dogs, especially the big breeds, as, as they get older, have problems, inflammation, and pain, especially around the big joints. Yes. So... That's a problem. I mean, people are interested in the in, in the anti-inflammatory effects of CBD, and there's a couple of big trials going on where it's used in inflammatory bowel disease in people. Um, there's there's this is based on work mostly done in the lab in a dish, not done in a, a patient or an animal, um, and it's interest intriguing work. But there's right now there's no evidence that it actually works. I mean, people are trying it with the hope that it's going to be helpful, um, but it's not. You know, there's no evidence that it, it works. It certainly has no acute analgesic effect. So it's not like ibuprofen or acetaminophen or something. Does it have an anti-inflammatory effect over time? I don't think anybody knows. Uh, and the human studies on it are, the small human studies done to date for chronic pain are really mixed in terms of results. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to use it for a, so if you're, going, if you're going to use the CBD oil in a drug, I think you should be. I think there's, there's, I think there's four things you should think in a dog. I think four things you should think. First of all, you should have a good, good conversation with your veterinarian or a care provider, the animal care provider, as to what the options are, because there are many non-drug options as well. I mean, I think you've pointed out quite correctly, and this is true for. I mean, and I was, I, I went way back in my misspent youth when I worked for the NIH. Uh, I was involved in some of the trials for ADHD and shit kids. And there's pretty clear evidence that, well, stimulant medication is effective. A comprehensive uh, uh, behavioral, you know, uh, CBD uh, package with, with behavioral therapy can be equally effective. It's just way more expensive. Um, so there are lots of non-pharmacologic treatments that you can use. And as a pharmacologist, I have to say I'm a bit of a therapeutic nihilist in that if you can use a non-pharmacologic therapy, it's usually a better idea. So not, first of all, what are the options? Are they pharmacologic ter therapy, non-pharmacologic therapy, or a combination of all of them? Then if you do decide to go with pharmacologic therapy, decide, first of all, what you're going to use, how you're going to get it, how you're going to dose it. So that's all important because you have to pick the right dosage. You have to pick that. Then there has to be the conversation like about how we follow it. How do we, how do we decide? How long do we go before we said this dog's not going to hunt? So this, this therapy is not going to work. 
and how long and how are we advising the you know the dog's the dog's family to know that this this there is some side effects is there dry mouth is there is there drowsiness um are there side effects that are maybe you know making it less attractive as a therapy and of course then we have to consider also how we pay for it because um you know even the best pet insurance isn't going to pay for it because the best human insurance doesn't pay for it and that's because of a peculiarity with cannabis in canada is that it, it doesn't have a din or drug identification number and it was set up that way so for in, insurance companies this is always the out well there's no din we can't pay for it and it's not especially cheap so that's a consideration as well so i think when you're i think the decision to prescribe cannabis or a cbd to a dog by a practitioner needs to be a thoughtful one and i think the most important part of the, the most important part of the decision is a very robust conversation with the family about these are the problems these are the possible solutions how am i going to sort out which among a range of solutions possibilities is best for my animal and so you had you know mentioned some of the possible side effects that seem to be pretty uh short term when it comes to administering cbd with children so uh, things like dry mouth, right. headaches, uh, you know, fatigue. Has there been a lot of research into possible long-term side effects? Mostly with, it's a good question, really good question. Most of the long-term side effects studies are with THC. And what's interesting about THC is, is like many of the, um, of the substance of abuse, part of the problem we have with substances like THC and opiates for that matter is we put a few million dollars into research to think we solved the problem, but we haven't. Because here's the deal. There are a lot of myths around THC and marijuana. So, for instance, the idea that marijuana is not addictive. Well, it's not addictive for most people, but it is addictive. It's just not as addictive as opiates. And opiates are a good example because there are people who can take an opiate for 10 years and stop and be fine. People who can take an opiate what, for three days and they're addicted. The same as with, with, with applies to the same thing applies to, to marijuana. There are people who can use marijuana all the time and stop and never be addicted. But about 10% of the population, so one in 10 people who use marijuana, get addicted to it. And that's a pretty consistent finding. So that's, you know, that, and, and people don't want to talk about it because so it's not addictive, but it is in some people. So we, I, I think part of the challenge we have, you don't understand, is, is how are those people different and become addicted? So there's a lot we don't know about it is a problem. And, and, you know, if you look at the long-term effect studies, they've been all focused around THC. And there's no question that for a certain part of the population, THC is a bad drug. Um, lower school performance, lower satis life satisfaction, uh, decreased, perform de decreased academic uh, ability, reduced short-term memory, increased psychosis risk, increased risk for ba bad life outcomes. So there's all kinds of data saying that long-term THC use is a bad thing uh, for certain people. I mean, certain people I'm sure can use it and not have any bad outcomes, but there are certain people it, is, it, it does. But there's very little on CBD use. Now, the, there are, if you look at, at the uh, population of kids with, with, with uh, epilepsy, been, there have been kids now have been using it for five-plus years, and they seem to be better off than with, before they were using it. But again, this is in a context of someone who was having, you know, 300 seizures a week versus 30, you're probably going to be better off. If you have some side effects, you're going to live with that because you say, well, this is still better than having all those seizures. But there's very little little, little known on long-term side effects. It doesn't seem to lose efficacy over time, which is a good thing. Um, but there's, like I said, in terms of long-term side effects, the, study, the population that's been studied the most are kids who have lots of long-term 
I mean, kids with, with serious epilepsy have lots of long-term adverse effects related to the epilepsy. It's hard to, it's hard to actually tease out how that factors into the CBD. I think the majority of neurologists would say that um, the long-term effects of untreated epilepsy are far worse than any drug side effects, so we're going to live with whatever drug side effects we have. But that's, there's very little known on that. And I know with dogs that you know CBD doses are typically based on you know age and, and size. Right. Are doses calculated the same way for children? Like it's how- primarily a good question. It's primarily on weight. Right. So uh, at epilepsy, as I said, in epilepsy, it's it's uh, based the dose is somewhere between five, probably between five and twenty milligram per kilogram per day. Uh, for other conditions, they use it at a much start at a much lower dose because twenty milligram per kilogram per day is a hefty dose. Um, fair, fair, as I said, fair incidence of side effects, quite expensive. Um, so people t- for the other conditions that have been doing the trials tend to start for the autism doses are much lower. Um, so but it, it is weight-based. An interesting thing as well, which we haven't talked about, is the effect on other drugs. Um, because I think people don't really appreciate that um, CBD and THC affect how other drugs are, are, are broken down in the body. So they actually inhibit the metabolism of a bunch of different drugs. So uh, no, it, this is a fact that's not quite as widely appreciated as I think it should be, that they actually impact on treatment of other drugs. So if, you're, if your dog is on another medication, it is possible that it may interfere with it. And that's a, it's a question to ask the pharmacist about. Um, what are the potential side effects of the drug with each drug-drug interaction? Well, and that's what actually scares me with when it comes to veterinary medicine is that there isn't a pharmacist to consult with. Right, like right. when you when you're uh, prescribed something by your veterinarian, you're purchasing it directly from the veterinarian. You right. uh, there isn't a, a separate like a third party. A learned intermediary, as they call it. I- exactly, and I'm not. Sh- I mean, CBD hasn't been used like widely and long enough in the veterinary world for vets to have a deeper understanding of what all of those kind of, you know, counter actions would be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, you know, that being said, veterinarians can't actually prescribe or sell CBD. They can only recommend it and then authorize it. purchase. Exactly. Similar yeah. to what it sounds like you're saying when it comes to children. Actually, so, that's very true, which is, which is why the same thing applies so when you're prescribed, which is, which is one of the reasons that I'm one of the few people here who prescribes it, because you have to then discuss the interactions. Because when they send it, because when they get the drug, they, they don't get it from a pharmacist. They get it actually from the company itself. So it's an analogous situation. So prescribing it puts a heavy onus on the prescriber, the authorizer, because you need, you need to have that conversation about the other medications that are being used. And, you know, if, if it's not hard, the, the information isn't hard to find because there's a couple of good websites and good resources, um, Drug Bank and the, the Arizona Sterner Project, look at drug-drug interactions, but it's work. You know, it's, and it's work that's way beyond the usual prescribing. Yeah, um, if you, if you, you could actually at it. some point send me the links that you uh, just mentioned so that I could include them in the notes for this uh, podcast, that would be great. Sure, I'll send, I'll send the link to the, to the, the one big center. There's a big drug-drug interaction uh, out of the University of Arizona. I'll send you the link for that. Okay, great. Well, so... You know, the in terms of administering the CBD itself, obviously, you know, children and dogs are not smoking marijuana. No. So, you know, the I, I know that the boutique sort of pet stores and naturopathic stores that sell CBD products for dogs, it's usually either just in the oil form or now it's become a little more popular to put it into treats so that the dogs mm-hmm. are more interested in, in actually consuming it. Right. 
So with children, I assume that the only way that it's administered is through oil. They're not trying to put it into edibles like gummies or candy or anything like that. That's correct. The, the whole issue of the uh, cannabis edibles is a hot topic right now. Um, and it's interesting because with the oils, if you have a, a reputable, the other thing when you pick a manufacturer, you have to pick someone who's actually will give you a, a reputable, reliable source because you don't want to have 25 milligrams one month, 2.5 the next month, 250 the next month. So you want to make sure that they have product consistency, um, which is really important. With one of the, with the edibles, first of all, um, the um, the Canadian Patrick Society is very clear. Our next day, our statement is going to say that the cannabis edibles are not suitable for therapy. Period. Full stop. First of all, their, their emphasis is on THC content. But if you look at places where, which were legalized ca cannabis for a long time ago, Colorado is the best example. I don't know quite, I mean, I have an idea why, but the variability in content is enormous. So if you go on down to Costco, assuming you're going to wait in line for a long time and stay six feet apart from people, um, you, you, know, you get a, a jar of their you know, adult gummies for alpha ones or something, or you know, omega-1 fatty acids. And they say, they say there's 100 milligrams in this, each tablet. And you know in each tablet in that bottle is between 99 and 101 milligrams. And in the next bottle and the bottles from last month, the bottles from next month, they're all the same. But if you look at some of the, uh, the cannabis edibles and they say it's 25 milligrams, or say 5 milligrams of THC. Well, in that bottle, there can be camels, tablets that have 5. There's some that might have 0.5. There's some that might have 15. Um, and there's a huge range in individual bottles, let alone lot to lot. I suspect that people who are making the edibles haven't quite the same degree of standardization that our vitamin and, 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 producer, uh, and other producers have because they've never had to. I mean, you know, recreational cannabis producers, they put something up, but nobody's going to call them on how much is in there. So there's a wide degree of variability. And the troubling thing is, is that when, when the FDA in the U.S. said that CBD was grass, generally recognized as safe, and they said uh, October 2018, well, you can sell CBD-containing products, they then checked them six months later and discovered that about – uh, of the CBD product being part of the market, a good hunk of them had zero CBD in it. They had other things in it, but no CBD oil. So that's why the FDA pulled a lot of them off the market. So I think there's a quality control issue as well from there. So I think if you're going to use a CBD product, my recommendation would be using CBD oil. Now, CBD oil is unpleasant tasting. It's it's a nasty tasting thing. Uh, you don't have to use a lot of it, but you need often have to mix with something else to make it a little more palatable. I don't know for the edibles for the animal treats if they have the same consistency problem is not but I'm it's sure been a consistency do. problem for human edibles well and i was going to say if there's a consistency problem for human edibles it's probably even more of a consistency problem with dogs because there's even less regulation right so i i mean i guess that's one of my biggest concerns so let's say that there's a parent that has done their research and decided that cbd is a good option for their child are there certain brands or companies that are more reliable or recommended like I, i'm sure just like any commercially available product that there's major quality differences between different right. companies well and there is a wide range i think it's important that um you know i don't want to recommend any one particular brand versus another but i think it's important that um you look at a producer who's been in, who's been in the game for a while they're not a fly by night you want to if possible find out how they do their quality controls I mean, LCMS is the best. Yeah, the liquid chromatography is the best way. Um, but uh, there's different producers use different methods, and some some producers will share their quality their quality uh, QA reports with people. 
So you want someone who's been there for a while, who has a range of products you can use, who's accessible, kind of ideally you know accessible, and who's who's upfront about their quality control standards. So you really want, and 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 then you want to stick to them, because you don't want to switch suppliers because um, the difference because there's like like likely to be fairly substantial lot lot supplier to supplier variability. So I think you want to find a product that works and stick to it. Which is why you want someone who's been in the game a while, because you don't want someone who's going to go to business six months from now and then have to find a new supplier. So it seems like a lot of you know, it just seems like a lot of work for a parent to have to do when they have absolutely no knowledge of the industry and yep. they're already feeling stressed because they have a child that's unwell. Like, it is a lot of work. You know, which is why, any, which is why I mean, I mean, that parents could work with that would be able to help them through that process at all. Well, ideally, I mean, certainly, I describe, I, I mean. In our local setting, I know a couple. Of, I know a local producer who's rely, who's consistent. So, we rely. We, we give the parents a couple of options. Producers that we know are consistent. We don't tell them which one to go to, but we give a couple of options in which we have no. We have, you know have confidence in the producer. Um, and I think it's important if you know if, if you're a vet or another animal care provider recommending you to do it. You, you, it, it actually behooves you to do a bit of research before you recommend set parents off because it's kind of not fair to your clients. To send them off and just go find this out without any guidance at all, because as you said, you know, there's no learned intermediary. That you're, you're, you as the prescriber have to do some roles you don't have to do for other drugs. So, again, part of the reason that I, part of the, of the reason that you know we have it, it takes a while to prescribe medications for kids, the CBD for kids, is you have to sit down and go over the options for prescribing, the options for getting it. So a lot depends on knowing producers of the medical products in your area or region. I mean, I don't have to be in your region, but, you know, it's always good to, to uh, support local, especially if they have quality product. Um, but you have to sort of, and then give the parent, give the family the or the clients the options. These are different options, you know, to explore. But it is a lot of work on, it's a lot of work for everybody concerned for, for, for prescribing it, which is why I think it's a, it's not a thing to be embarked upon lightly. Um, and if you're going to get into it, uh, you need to, it, it's, it's awkward to do in a fee-for-service model. Because most visit times, you know, you, you have to spend, it, the amount of time you're going to have to spend prescribing it is more than, you know, most people are going to charge for a visit. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a sacrifice on the part of the prescriber if you're going to do it right. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't have any problem with that because, again, I'm a salaried physician. So, I mean, I get, if, if I take an, I spend 10 minutes with the patient or 10 hours, the patient get paid exactly the same per month. So it doesn't really matter for me. But for some people, it does. Right. Yeah, I know. It's it's just it's very complicated. And I you know, the lack of regulations, especially in the veterinarian canine space, always concerns me because right. I know that even at a lot of the you know, I'm based in Toronto mm. and there's a there's a lot of small boutique sort of pet stores that mm. sell C B D treats and you don't need to have any sort of, you know, prescription or authorization from vets. Anyone can go in and purchase them if they think it's the right choice for their dog. Mm. And, you know, the packages don't tell you anything about, you know, the number of milligrams of CBD that are in each individual treat that you're giving to your dog. And then in addition to that, since they're being advertised as treats as opposed to, a, you know, a medication, you right. end up possibly overfeeding and we don't know what this long-term side effects are. So mm -hmm. there's just a, you know, a lot to think about. And I, I wish that it was just regulated a little more. Right. Well, we do as well. I mean, uh, we've, you know, we, I mean, 
with all due respect to Mr. Harper, who's the guy who legalized it, it would have been probably nice if he had actually forced the manufacturers to go to the to trouble of getting a DIN and follow the regular steps that Health Canada requires. There is a CBD drug available that's for the, there is like a regular drug available from CBD in the US, Epidiolex. Um, it's made by Greenleaf out of the UK. And it is, it's, it's, it's designed for epilepsy and it, is a DI, it has a DIN and it's, it's a regular pharmaceutical. Uh, I don't think it'll ever come to Canada and part of that is because of cost. Because it costs about 30,000 bucks a year, which is not have, insignificant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there it's probably unlikely that insurance would cover it. Well, if you have really good insurance, it might, but you'd have to have really good insurance. And, you know, and most people's don't. Most people won't cover it or you hit some kind of, you know, um, wall. It's, it's actually high-cost drugs, it's, uh, just as an FYI, high-cost drugs are a big issue now in pediatric. They're a big issue in adult medicine as well uh, because the whole uh, field of therapeutics in Canada in the world is shifting. And it's getting more of these high-cost niche drugs because the, the average Canadian spends about – 1200 bucks a year on prescriptions on average. It depends how old you are. If you're a kid, if you're a child, it's maybe a couple hundred bucks. If you're a senior, it's a couple thousand bucks. That's about what we spend. But if you get to start people getting drugs that cost, you know, 10, 20, 30, $40,000 a year, and some of these new drugs that come, are coming out are costing in excess of $100,000 a year, that upends the system pretty quickly. So the system, so hospital based systems, pharmacists go, systems go underwater really quickly with that. And that's a big problem across the country. Actually, we're having a symposium about that in Ottawa this June uh, with Health Canada and a bunch of the Canadian and the Canadian uh, Pierre Chairs of Canada and Health and Children's Healthcare Canada, which we had to of course postpone back to September because of COVID. But it is a big issue for everybody in the country. So, and you know, and I'm sure, and I'm I could be wrong with this, but I suspect pet insurance is no more generous than human insurance. No, not really. <laughs> uh, and you know, pet insurance. Is, obviously, there's no universal pet insurance. So at least in Canada, we're lucky that we have a basic health plan that for people right. under a certain age get prescriptions available at no cost. Mm. Uh, but there's no universal pet insurance. Um, you know, pets are still considered property under law. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, every pet insurance plan is is fairly expensive. It's not included in anyone's work benefits. No. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very costly in, endeavor and many people that have pets end up choosing not to procure health insurance because ultimately the amount they pay into the insurance rarely pays out unless there's some sort of accident. Right. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a controversial topic among a lot of pet owners. I'll bet. So before I let you go, there's something that I like to do with my guests. I, I'm going to read you an email that I received from one of my dog training clients regarding a question they have concerning their dog. Sure. And I'd like you to answer the question as if it were a parent reaching out to you about their child. Right. Okay. So it's, it's a little bit of a long email, so just That's bear okay. with me. Okay. Dear Ashley, I'm really hoping that you can help me. I've seen many trainers and behaviorists, and I'm starting to give up hope. A couple different rescues recommended that I get in touch with you about my dog, Frida, and suggested that you might be able to recommend the best course of action. My dog is very clever and super sweet and is generally easygoing, but she has a few triggers that set off anxious and aggressive behavior. When she's in the presence of those specific things, she's completely unpredictable and not trustworthy. 
when she, is, she isn't being rational and she doesn't respond to my voice or any direction at all. As soon as the trigger goes away, she returns to her regular sweet self as if nothing happened. The trainers I worked with previously had recommended counter-conditioning, desensitization to those triggers, exposure, and even some suggested physical punishment or restraint. Nothing I've tried has worked so far. My vet thinks I should medicate her, but that makes me uncomfortable because this behavior only presents itself a couple times a week, and I'd hate for the rest of her personality to be negatively affected in some way. Can you please provide me with some guidance? So let's, let's assume that a parent reaches out to you from a referral from another pediatrician and their child who we can say is six years old mm. is typically very social and focused and easygoing but there's a few things that they encounter that are huge triggers for them and when they're exposed to those things they become violent and unpredictable and hurt themselves and the others that are around them and they're out of control and then as soon as those triggers go away they go back to being perfectly fine so she's been to a couple doctors and therapists, and so far none of the strategies have worked. In, in this situation, would you recommend uh, medication or CBD or some other alternative form of treatment or therapy? Or you know, what sorts of questions might you ask or what type of assessment might you do in this situation? So this is a, this is a very interesting problem because so you have a thing that happens a couple times a week, which is obviously troubling, but it's a couple times a week. And it's obvious. And, and, this is a person who knows their dog slash child really well um, because they know the triggers and they understand it and they understand the behavior and they understand and they are justifiably concerned about A, controlling the behavior, but B, not having any adverse effects on the holistically on the rest of the child slash dog slash child's experience. I think that's, so I have an, inform, an, an informed uh, parent slash owners. Um, so, so that's good. So you're working with someone who's concerned and informed and is obviously willing to do the work. I think in this point, I think, I think the trigger needs to be explored a little more to see if there's a way of potentially avoiding triggers. I mean, they've obviously worked to try to change the reaction to the triggers and that hasn't worked. And that may need more exploring. I think, um, is there a way to avoid the triggers? Because his situation is really in which, as a, again, as a therapeutic nihilist, I would be reluctant to jump to therapy for something which happens infrequently and might have some uh, detrimental effects on quality of life and interactions in the rest of, the t of your space. So my personal view is I think the triggers need a lot more exploring to see, first of all, if there's options to avoid the triggers, and second of all, to explore the therapies that have been tried to date. I would not jump to pharmacotherapy in this case. Um, um, and I would think if you did use pharmacotherapy, so say the triggers are unavoidable, but you can know around what time they are. Then perhaps pharmacotherapy around the time of the triggers might be an option, but I wouldn't probably use something around the clock unless I was pretty desperate. So there's a strategy I would use first, uh, but I think the first thing would be, you know, a fulsome discussion around what causes the issues and, and to see, to study avoidance. Um, and then perhaps if that's not possible, uh, if pharmacotherapy is, is necessary and none of the other behavior or other, op other options are, are, are acceptable, and I think punishment is a bad idea um, because it's, it's sending the wrong message. Um, so I think in, those, in, those, in these conditions, I think well, we, one would, would want to explore how, um, you know, how can we approach this in a way that limits potential long-term adverse effects and limits potential 
limits what limits the interventions to the specific uh, 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 triggering event. So that's kind of how I would approach it. Yeah, and it actually sounds like your approach is almost exactly aligned with how I did respond to this client. You know, like I would I would never recommend or discuss medication without obviously first doing a comprehensive assessment of the dog. And even then, I'm not a vet, so I can't prescribe anything anyways. Right. But, you know, typically after the assessment, I reach out to the client's vet so that we can have an open conversation and determine a training plan that if deemed necessary would involve a combination of, you know, behavioral therapy and medication, uh, you know, with the goal of lowering the dose slowly and eventually eliminating it entirely. Right. But, you know, that being said, if the dog, as you said, you know, doesn't have an overall anxious temperament and is only displaying anxiety or aggression in very specific circumstances, then that, you know, obviously tells me that you would, as you said, also try to avoid those stimuli as much as possible. Right. If that's not a possibility, like it's something like birds, you know, that or like yeah. bicycles that you would encounter unpredictably on a daily basis. Right. Then I would try to set up a series of replacement or incompatible behaviors through counter conditioning and, and desensitization strategies alongside possible daily confidence building and impulse control exercises and also teaching self-regulation and meditation and, right. and those types of things. Um, and the program will be customized to the dog. But as you said, this situation to me doesn't sound like it requires medical intervention of any kind. Right. Um, well, I should say pharmaceutical intervention of any kind. It, it, yeah, does, I, it may require intervention, but there's a lot of, you know, I think people make a mistake of thinking that therapy implies drugs. But there's, you know, therapy includes talking to people and, you know, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and so, learning you know, strategies for the like, coping mechanisms. Yeah, so therapy is therapy is just stuff that stuff you use to, you know, we've been doing therapy for a long time before we were using drugs. That's for sure. Right, and you know, behavioral therapy can be far more successful in a lot of situations than any type of pharmaceutical intervention could. Well, yeah, there's no question. Like going again back to the ADHD example, cognitive behavioral therapy is very effective in ADHD. It's just very expensive. Yes. Um, okay, well, yeah, I was going to say thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I, I I got a lot out of it. And I think that people listening to it, both dog owners and parents, will will ascertain a lot of information from this conversation. Great. Um, if, if people wanted to find you, are you accessible online or offline? Yeah, I'm available through the email. They just have to check the you know, search University, University of West Ontario for me and my contact info is all there. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Are you looking to add a dog to your family? For a limited time only, listeners of Baby Puppy will receive 10% off our unique mutt-making package. Let us help you find the right breed, energy level, and temperament for your household based on your experience, expectations, routine, and personality. 
We always say there's no such thing as the perfect dog, but there is definitely a perfect dog for you. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, child or dog related, email info at meetyourmutt.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at meetyourmutt or visit the website at www.meetyourmutt.com. Remember, this podcast is just a baby or puppy. And as they say, it takes a village. So please rate and review. Happy parenting. Baby Puppy is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Balin. Production assistance by Koji Nagata and theme song by Pink Distortion Music. (laughs) 